This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the episode uh, which wasn't supposed to happen. We were supposed to be uh, recording late on Tuesday night, 9 o'clock, maybe 10 o'clock at night, reacting to the drama of Theresa May losing her big vote in the House of Commons. But with no regard at all for podcast forward planning, the Prime Minister pulled the vote. And this is where we are. So this is now uh, Tuesday morning, trying to get a handle on what on earth we ask ourselves again is going on and what happens next. Keep up to date with future episodes of the Red Box podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Lots of specials coming up over Christmas, so you don't want to miss those. And while you're there, why not post a review as well, but only say nice things. It is Christmas. Right, joining me on the panel, Katie Perry, a former Director of Communications for Theresa May in number 10, although that feels like a very long time ago. We'll be asking her if Theresa May is finished. Henry Zeffman is back. He was here last week laying out his amazing graphic explaining what was going to happen next. The one thing that wasn't on it was that Theresa May pulls the vote but he's back to try and explain what might happen but we begin with Ian Martin Times columnist trying to explain what has gone wrong how on earth did we get here two and a half years after the referendum with only a matter of weeks until we're supposed to leave the EU and there's still no clarity at all on how on earth it's going to happen. My view is there's a lot of blame to go around and Brexiteers like me need to take a large share of it but the Prime Minister made elementary errors and botched the negotiations leaving us where we are. So, you know, I was tempted just to spend half an hour playing my favourite game, which is asking you to say it's all going very well with a straight face. Uh, <laughs> yeah. up, uh, I ask you. Um, it keeps on getting better. <laughs> <laughs> there was a sort of slight sense that the Prime Minister had some momentum yeah. uh, with a small M. The, 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 you know, she, she wasn't going to get a deal and then she did get a deal and then maybe in the end people in some way would come round to it thinking well, there was there was no alternative and then it just all sort of fell apart. But let's wind it back a bit. What, what are the mistakes that you think she made which well, I don't, in this position. I don't suggest that it's ignoble to just keep the show on the road, to just keep going. But that's been the defining characteristic of the entire approach to Brexit and a failure to wrestle with the fundamentals of the negotiation. Like lots of the Cabinet, a lot of Tory MPs, a lot of people who are in favour of Brexit, there was a feeling that you just kept that show on the road. Eventually, at some point, the Prime Minister would 
face down the EU on one or more aspects of of the negotiations and deliver something which was a compromise. Government doesn't have a majority. It was never going to be necessarily the sort of clean, pure, hard Brexit that a lot of the more hardline Brexiteers wanted. But because of her approach, excessively secretive, rejecting the advice at key moments from leading ministers, always taking the view of officials as her lead, that has brought her to this point. What was supposed to happen in the number 10 analysis was that just the relief of there being a deal, any deal, it would just have this huge historic momentum behind it and that Tory MPs would be inherently pragmatic and just decide to accept the backstop, go for it, and it might be tight and it might require 20 or 30 Labour MPs to vote for it, but you'd just about get it over the line and we could all move on. Katie, I was talking to a cabinet minister yesterday who was explaining to me how Theresa May is a difficult woman to budge and it doesn't matter how much the evidence, as Ian was saying, was stacking up that this was not going terribly well, she will not be moved from her course and even very senior members of the government telling her to move individually and in groups is not enough to make her budge and in some ways that's what has helped to keep the show on the road. If she did budge every time somebody in the cabinet wasn't happy She'd be all over the place. But actually, that's ended up being a flaw, isn't it? Yeah, what we're finding is many of her attributes and the strengths that she had since taking office are now turning out to be her major flaws uh, as we go through this process. Where we're at now is a massive failure to communicate, communicate right from the beginning, not just to the public, which I think is very, very important about the need for compromise where we need to compromise because she doesn't have that majority in the House of Commons, but also communicating with her own colleagues from all different sides of of the House of Commons because Theresa May doesn't do that kind of warm, come in for a cup of tea, I really need to chat to you about stuff, I've got this issue, I don't think I'm going to be able to get what I really want, but we are here, how much of this can you support? Uh, and so she you know, she doesn't have that face time with people in a way that maybe David Cameron might have done. You know, That was a real strength of David Cameron's and Tony Blair's too, and she doesn't have that. And I think it's coming back to bite her somewhat. We always knew that that election campaign was going to really kind of cause her major problems over the Brexit process. But every day we're being reminded of that lack of majority in the House of Commons. Mm. And I think that we need to go back to Theresa May's style in government, the way she governs. And I think she has to take some blame for where we are. She must regret calling the election. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. The difference between that situation then, when she looked like she had been crying and she looked like she was devastated and it was a genuine shock. I don't think she's particularly shocked with where we are right now. Yeah. I think they've game-planned it for a long time. She, lo- she looks tired, but she doesn't look defeated. She doesn't look... She actually looks quite determined. Mm. And, you know, you look at the, the what they've done in the last few days, putting her at the dispatch box, she's strong there. Yeah. Putting her in front of a lectern, she's strong. So they're trying to choose moments where she's strong. They're going to send her to Brussels. She's going to try and look like she's playing hardball to try and appease the, the ARG and others. She's going to come back with very little. And then what we've done is really just delay the inevitable, haven't we? Anyway, let's talk about the whips. The whips have been getting a lot of blame. Uh, Listeners of the podcast will know all about the whips because we had an excellent series of interviews with whips two years ago, I think. Well worth looking at. It's called The Whip Man. It's the sort of dark art. So it's the bit of Parliament which even most journalists know least about. It's the sort of protected behind the scenes. And actually, the whips love to play up to all. We don't talk about our clever ways of persuading people because actually they turn out to not be that clever. It's just sort of like, well, if you want that day off of a wedding, then you've got to turn up and vote for that thing or whatever. But Julian Smith, Chief Whip, has been getting a lot of grief in the past 24 hours about this. Just explain why or his role in, in why it's all gone wrong. Well, one of the most extraordinary lines in The Times' uh, excellent coverage uh, this morning of what went wrong over the last day and over the last 
days and weeks, is the idea that Julian Smith, the chief whip, repeatedly said at cabinet meetings, don't worry, Prime Minister, I can get this deal through the House of Commons. Now, that's extraordinary uh, or an extraordinary claim for two reasons. One is it never had a snowball's chance of getting through the House of Commons. And you'd expect him to know that. So if he didn't, he's clearly not a very good whip. But secondly, is the idea that Theresa May, I mean, Katie says, uh, Downing Street keep putting her at the dispatch box. Well, putting her at the dispatch box means that, you know, several times a week for the last few weeks, she has had her own MP standing up <laughs> for three hours saying, I hate your deal. Yeah. So if, if she hadn't actually noticed the content of the questions to which she was responding, I mean, I know she doesn't answer questions, but she, she ought to at least hear them. That is kind of an extraordinary feat of prime ministerial failure, whatever Julian Smith was saying in cabinet meetings. But but the discontent with the whips burrows far deeper than just Theresa May suddenly noticing a few weeks late that a lot of her MPs didn't like her deal. A lot of MPs say that they haven't even been spoken to by their whip. I mean, the whip's office is not just the chief whip, Julian Smith. It is something like 12, 13, 14 MPs, starting with Julian Smith and burrowing down to quite junior MPs. They're meant to have, although they don't at the moment, and this is a separate complaint that MPs have, but they're meant to have sort of generational spread, geographical spread, so that every Tory MP, and every Tory MP has a personal whip looking after them, has someone who they can talk to about their concerns with the government. And that has clearly just broken down. Now, at the best of times, your whipping system can't break down. In a situation where you have a minority (laughs) government and you are trying to get the most controversial piece of post-war politics through a uh, House of Commons for which there is no majority for that or any other form of it, no wonder Theresa May pulled the vote. I tell you what you don't do as well. When you're in the middle of that fresh hell you do not invite the television cameras in to record what's going on. So this on. is Gillian Smith, the chief whip, got ITV News in to show him filming, filming him, <laughs> not just... Failing to persuade. But failing to persuade Philip Davis. I mean, in terms of, like, if you wanted to stunt up having a conversation, you know, you just get someone to say in public, oh, they were gates, and then, like, turn them. Banging can I, my can head I, against a brick wall. Can I counterintuitively just speak up a little bit for, for, the, for the chief whip? In the, I mean, they're... they're it tends to never be a job in which someone becomes popular. A few people have managed to have careers after. What Smith uh, tried to do is really what I think lots of people witnessing an organisation in meltdown, in trouble. He has again tried to keep the show on the road. He's tried to say to his boss, I'll try and do this for you. I think I can do this for you and tried to try to deliver. Where the weakness comes, I think, is in precisely what Katie was saying. If Theresa May is the kind of person that you can't have that conversation with, that you can't say, look, we've got to talk about this in human terms, you're losing here, this is much worse than it seems, forget the the scripted lines from number 10 that you use on the TV, let's have a proper political conversation. Now, she can't do that, as we understand it, with most members of the cabinet it's probably very difficult for her to do that with the chief whip as well that will communicate itself automatically to the rest of the whips operation we we should add in there also that the performance at cabinet is pure theatre and what he's telling her behind closed doors is probably very different from what he's telling his cabinet colleagues true two mps have made the same point to me in the past week or so that if you look at the makeup of the whips office you can trace back some of the problem to the reshuffle in january that's the, the famously successful reshuffle. Chris Grayling, chairman of the Tory party for 27 seconds. But the first day was a total disaster. People wouldn't move. Justin Greening ended up resigning. It was a total disaster. Day two, when she started appointing junior jobs, because nobody had moved into the cabinet, there weren't many spaces, the, the jobs she did appoint ended up going to men. So then there was a complaint about where are all the women, and she stuffed 
the lower ranks of the whip's office with young, bright, but fairly inexperienced women who hadn't been MPs for very long and they think that they're on the up. And actually what you need in the whip's office at the moment is a load of hardened... That's true, but you can have the best whipping operation in the world if the policy is basically a dud, there's not very much you can do. But also, not only did they do that with all these women to put them into quite junior whips roles, they instantly, by doing that, took them on the te- off the telly. Yeah. And actually, young female Tories are needed on the telly box. Yeah. They're not necessarily needed in a whipping operation. That reshuffle in particular is, uh, but reshuffles in general, are underplayed as an explanation and for just the sheer discontent uh, throughout the Tory party at the moment. So I actually remember having lunch with a Tory MP who might reasonably have thought they might get a job out of that reshuffle only a matter of weeks after and they made exactly that point and the way they couched it was John Major started his career in the Whip's office. Uh, Ted Heath was a chief whip who became Prime Minister and this MP said, look, frankly, I look at four or five of the people who became whips uh, in this reshuffle they're not going to be a junior minister, let alone prime minister. Why on earth should I bother listening to them? I mean, it's a quite crude way for an MP to admit to thinking. But frankly, you know, in the past, they've obeyed whips in the knowledge that that whip is going to have an even more senior hand in what job they get in the future. This MP just thought, those whips are useless. I don't care what they think. I don't care what they say. I don't believe that there will be any consequences for me ignoring them. And it actually just speaks back to the fundamental problem in the background of all of this which is that the conservative party is divided on policy divided on personality if people don't hate the colleagues sat next to them for what they believe they dislike them for the way in which they want to propagate it and uh, it is kind of an ungovernable mess and as ian says you know julian smith could be the best whip in the world and he's clearly not uh, and he wouldn't know how to solve that well, let's move on then. Having sorted out the problems with the policy and why that's not going to work, let's move on to the personality and, in particular, the Prime Minister. This is Katie Perry. Is Theresa May finished? Well, I'm no mystic Meg, but I think her timing office is somewhat shortened within the last 24 hours. Yesterday, she attempted to remind MPs of the dispatch box who she was there for, for the just about managing those she spoke about on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street, which may all feel like a long time ago was only just a short couple of years. This is a great shame of all, that the opportunity has been squandered and that crushing election result has yet again come back to bite her. She won't now be given the opportunity, regardless of what her final Brexit deal looks like. So with great sadness, I say we are now shopping for a new Tory party leader. Just don't ask me to predict who. Well, I will, but we'll come on to that in a moment. Let's deal the first of all um, with Theresa May. It was quite sort of striking at the end of her statement, having announced that she was having to put a whole thing on hold, an unprecedented cock-up of prime ministerial strategy. She then, towards the end of her statement, said, now I want to speak personally. And you thought, well, maybe, you know, is she, she about to resign as well? Instead, she tried to manoeuvre, reverse back into the burning injustices speech that is a stock sort of, I've got lots more I want to do. And I just, I, I think I was sitting next to colleagues in the press gallery and I sort of said, you can't, now is not the time to start talking about coffee cup levies and, you know, the racial disparity audit and all these other little bits and bobs that she thinks, like the whole country is about to go hurtling over a cliff and she wants to go back to talking about... Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We should break out into a round of applause there. Yeah. It's completely crackers. it It reminded me of the speech that she gave after, you know, the election kind of crushing scenario that she found herself in where she didn't really ever acknowledge the steps of down street after the election exactly so she came out obviously you know she wasn't surrounded by advisors everybody had gone by that point whatever she was on her own but she came out and she acknowledged the election kind of scenario because it's not a defeat she did beat the Labour Party but never really actually said why what she's going to do 
about the kind of response that she got from the general public, the two fingers that she had up. And it's, an, an, you know, very clear when you when you sit back and look at it like that, you think you're kind of, you've, you've missed something here. There's a chromosome <laughs> missing in terms of acknowledging that what the public feel about you or the message they were trying to send with that election result. And again, yesterday, you know, if I was in, if I was in the House of Commons and I'm an MP and I'm sitting there, I'd be thinking, you've just pivoted from a crisis to telling us what, what you want you really here in office for yeah 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 yeah. we know what you, you're here for love this is a mess a complete and utter mess and i just I sat there and thought you, you you've kind of missed a trick again here it was a bit like the house is on fire but she's got some really good plans for the hanging baskets next spring that she's really looking it did forward feel to a bit like that and uh, while we're all sitting there with our mouths wide open thinking <laughs> this is a crisis of unprecedented proportions and you know history will be looking at us thinking how did we deal and how do we get through this mess it was the wrong moment for her to have a personal pitch about why you should keep me in the job you said in your introduction that you think this has hastened her departure why is that I, i tell you why because and it goes back to private polling they have at number 10 which says that the general public want her to get on with brexit and they have some sympathy with her. And I feel that some colleagues also have some sympathy for her. I certainly have had sympathy for Theresa May over the last year. I feel like it doesn't matter who would have been the party leader, we would have found ourselves in this position. And she's done the best that she possibly can do. However, when you exchange that sympathy for delaying a Brexit that the public are saying just get on with, and you're doing it quite openly and transparently to save your own skin, it starts to be a little bit more transparent and people start to think, you know what, you can't do it. It's not happening for you. You might have to move aside. So, so a lot of MPs that have sympathy for her and were quite loyal, I think, are, are now you know being a bit pushed on that. I think there's something really important in in that, which is the fact that it's so transparent that she delayed the vote, at least in great part, to save her skin. Uh, we say a lot about Theresa May. Isn't her fortitude and resilience and bravery and determination extraordinary? Yes. And then we also say she has such a great sense of duty, and. That sense of duty is usually assumed to be to the country. I think yesterday actually suggests that's really not the case and that she has a sense of duty to herself and herself being prime minister before she has a sense of duty to the country. And we've got to remember her backstory. Theresa May has nothing in her life other than the Conservative Party. And I know that sounds harsh, but it really is true. She spent her childhood stuffing envelopes. She met her husband at Conservative Party dance at the University of Oxford. They then moved to London. Uh, Philip became chairman of the Wimbledon Conservative Association. Then she became a councillor there. Then she tried loads and loads of times to become an MP, eventually successfully became an MP and that has been their life. Of course she doesn't want to stop being Prime Minister. What would she do afterwards? I can totally understand on a human level why she wants to cling to office but I think we should drop the cant that there is some sense of duty to the public. I mean I'm I'm sure she feels it but that is not what is driving her decision yesterday. It is her Mm. staying as Prime Minister. I'm told on that. I think it is so over um, (laughs) and (laughs) so over it's some of us have been saying for a long time that that she needs to go and that the Tory party needs someone fresh. I think the reality is it needs to happen even earlier than that, is that the Tory party did something highly unusual and strange. It's usually pretty ruthless, not always, but usually pretty ruthless. When a leader fails on contact with the electorate, the Tory party is usually pretty ruthless about getting rid of them. And that should have happened immediately after the disaster of the 2017 election. Having tried something brave once, which was going for the snap election, and having suffered trauma, actually, having suffered that, the lesson that she then learnt was maximum caution. 
and she took that into her approach to dealing with the with the Brexit problem. I think she has to go really, really quickly. It could be like the Grand National um, in terms of runners and riders and all manner of <laughs> all manner of extraordinary characters. Of, of dead horses being flogged. I'm astonished that some of the people will name no names who suddenly seem to think that they, they're in with the shot. Of well, I will. Prime Esther Minister. McVeigh in the weekend <laughs> saying that if asked, she's prepared to step forwards. In the same interview, an extraordinary interview on Sky News in which she started saying it was all going to be all right if we have no deal because we'll have the implementation period to get ready until yeah. it was pointed out that we don't get the implementation period. She said, oh, there will be, we'll agree a deal for no deal. Mean, meanwhile, <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> It's it, it would my assessment would be uh, Hunt and Javid are the front runners, not an original view, but the front runners from the cabinet, with Rob as an outsider. If he can get the backing of sufficient number of Brexiteers, DD is on manoeuvres again with a speech last night, which was not which was not really about Brexit. It was about a whole host of other things. Boris has got a haircut. Seems to someone told me he's doing yoga every morning, which creates the most incredible mental image wow, and he's um, that flexible huh yeah apparently um he's <laughs> so flexible he's now going to come out for a second referendum <laughs> but he's um so Bo- so boris has sort of got his mojo back and thinks he's in with a shot i don't think that's really going to happen but that i think is the broad mix with, there, and then throw there, amber rudd in in there, I was as, say, is there a as, woman possibly as someone as someone who can then amber rudd as someone who I don't think stands a chance of getting past the um, parliamentary party, but has probably 30 to 40 Remainer-ish one-nation votes that she can then barter. She could be a running mate for someone. A partner, yeah. a partnership with someone. I um, was struck by a couple of people that are speaking to me about this this week, and I picked up a conversation, a thread of conversation from both of them that said, well, you're not going to get another woman because that's you lot done. Pardon? Sorry? And it's, it's, well, you know, you've had a shot at it and it's not been very successful, is it? And so, you know, it's time for a man now. And I thought, okay, it's this time is, for a man this now. Is, That's this your is, campaign slogan. This has yeah. gone Owning so very wrong. So now, now we're at this level. No, no men at all in the financial crisis or the Iraq yeah. war. I mean, you know, it was, I mean, that was all just, women it's, as well. It's, it's I can see that. Boris Johnson, it's time for a man now. Madness. Get that written on the side of a bus. This is the utter madness <laughs> that, we, that, um, that we, we, people were talking about, which is you've had your chance. Yeah. Your lady had your chance. She's, she's blown it kind of thing I actually th- feel that um, there will be a big push within Parliament for someone that isn't a Brexiteer and so possibly that person may go a little bit higher up than they would have done otherwise what like Amber Rudd yes well like Amber Rudd but I also think that you know over the last couple of weeks uh, come to the conclusion that maybe they do really are going to push for someone that isn't the, the obvious and so because we want a real, real fresh kind of cut through mm. and I'm not saying that is the backbencher with no experience whatsoever but it may well be someone that surprises us. And someone, you know, I've, I've long thought that someone like Penny Mordaunt might come through in that scenario and, and come good. She's not showered herself in glory during this fiasco, though, is she? Neither supporting the deal publicly, but nor Matt, that's how Theresa May become Prime Minister. Well, I know, but that's not... I don't and think Don following Major. the Theresa May strategy is necessarily... Um, uh, when you put yourself maybe in, in such a, a box, we know what Theresa May... We know, yeah. we know what Penny... But, but, I suppose, but is Penny doing that deliberately because it works? Or is she doing it like Theresa May because she's never actually had an original thought in her life and was waiting for somebody else to give it to no, her? No, I think that's very different. I think that Penny Morden <laughs> is very opinionated uh, on politics. Much like this podcast she's just, this week. <laughs> she's just, uh, you know, not not constantly go out there flogging her Brexit credentials because she knows that she needs to win over other sides of the party. She hasn't had a good run in, has she? If the leadership contest is happening soon, she hasn't had a good last month or two. I wonder if there'll also be people like 
complete wild cards who might do a bit better than people think. You take someone like a moderate like Mark Harper. A few names appearing like that that might. I think we might be in for some surprises. You're in, the, you're in those Hancock. circumstances where you're in those circumstances where. Um, <laughs> I'm not ignore that. that. <laughs> you're in those <laughs> circumstances totally where. Possible. If you do just if you get quite a large field over the course of forty eight hours, someone could perform brilliantly on the Today program or on a we, key we never TV thought, we, moment. That, that's a perfect example of David Cameron and mm. David Davis. It was a shoe in for David Davis, yeah. and David Cameron came out and gave a speech of his life. And I felt the removing there and then. It doesn't take much. You talk about she hasn't had a good last month. It doesn't come to, when it comes True. down to it. It really is True. the last forty eight hours. You know, what, can you get people over the line? Can you get them uh, in your camp? So. Uh, I think it's all to play for, but you're right. It's going to be like 20 people having a go at it. Ian said earlier, and he was probably right, that the Conservative Party should have had this argument and should have junked Theresa May in the days after the general election uh, last June. But this conversation we've just had is, is why they didn't. The argument that during Brexit negotiations, while a clock is ticking, you can't have a grand national uh, leadership contest <laughs> kind of still holds and mm. there is that question well, the over whether was, the logic that, was, that has kept her in place since last june holds right up until 29th of march 11 p.m but that argument now feels that's totally the case now but in a way we've been in this constant the clock ticking scenario for two which, years which is in a way why she's delayed that vote because the closer we get to deal day yeah. the closer that she can possibly get something through that people don't want because it's better than a no deal option and it makes her allows her to stay on a bit longer so she's literally treading water in the hope that no one notices and it depends on what that person is being elected to do are they being elected as a managed no deal leaders to try and get on with it or are they being elected to do something else and find some other sort of compromise well, that's the way in which a leadership election would be helpful is that you know however many candidates you have at the start two get put forward to the party membership and broadly one of them will want a very hard brexit and one of them will want something softer than that and it will force the conservative party and least, first in parliament and then in the country to decide there'll be a mandate exactly and this time last year i wrote a piece in the times about the best perfect present you can buy your other half of christmas is membership to the conservative party uh, even though i got lots of uh, kickback on that and people saying i'd rather eat my own arm than be a member of the conservative party i well, still think it's a great you'll bet. have to eat after brexit <laughs> <laughs> it's still a good bet, you know, you want to be in charge of who comes next. Before we move on, very quickly, what's going to happen first? Theresa May leaves number 10 or Britain leaves the EU? Ian? Uh, Theresa May leaves number 10. Katie? <laughs> Henry? Uh, I was hoping Katie would buy me a bit more time. Theresa May leaves number 10. Yeah, I probably have to agree to that. Right, that's Theresa May's future sorted. In a moment, we'll discuss what's actually going to happen in Europe over the next couple of weeks. We'll be back after this short break. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Joined in the studio by Katie Perrier, Ian Martin, and this is Henry Zeffman. She's pulled the vote. And once again, Theresa May is off to Europe. First in The Hague to meet the Dutch Prime Minister, then to Germany to meet Angela Merkel, and then to Brussels. Well, fat chance she's going to get anything from them that she hasn't already banked. So what on earth is the point of Theresa May trying to renegotiate? So, Henry, I suppose I was going to ask you, what is the point of her doing this? But you you don't think there is any? Well, I understand it from her point of view. I mean, there is a perhaps one in 100 chance that something turns up. Whereas if she hadn't pulled the vote, there was a zero in 100 chance that something turned up. But it is still dramatically unlikely that something turns up. I mean, what was really striking in the House of Commons yesterday was that May herself set the ceiling for what she can achieve really quite low. She said, oh, I I want reassurances on what best (laughs) endeavours means. Uh, Non-legal reassurances. I mean, it's I just mean, a sort of, it's not just up from a thank you note, really. Is basically, sort of, and, and, and OK, fine, she might buy off five of the 100 Tory rebels like that. A few Labour MPs in, in Brexity constituencies might look at the, the email inbox and go, oh dear, I probably ought to back this. But that is not nearly enough to cope with the catastrophic uh, scale of defeat that was and still is imminent. In fact, you know, it, it is almost irresponsible to, without any chance of getting something which changes the outcome to delay Parliament's uh, right to force the issue. That was what the House of Commons was going to do. It was going to say no in large numbers and MPs were going to have to stare into the abyss and go, okay, what else can we do? They're still going to have to do that. They're just going to have to do it in January now, which is much closer to March the 29th. Ian, the thing that struck me, actually it was a minister who first sort of galvanises my mind. I wrote about it in the Red Box email on Tuesday morning. If we dare to lift our eyes from our own Brexit navel, if you look across Europe Mm. country after country has got problems France being the most obvious one Macron has tried to deal with the riots and Paris aflame Angela Merkel's trying to cling on his Chancellor in Berlin uh, in Spain all they're interested in is trying to claim back Gibraltar and bolster their poll ratings there Belgium the coalition's just broken up Sweden doesn't have a Prime Minister Italy it's got a massive row over its budget the summit in Brussels this week was supposed to be all about the Italy budget and not about Brexit EU leaders don't want to go back all over this again, do they? No, and I think that that, ironically, doesn't really help Britain. You consider the situation in France where this this guy who's been parading around for the last 18 months as the saviour of Europe now is trying to save his own presidency. I think what that means in terms of the Brussels machine is that they have to stick to what they know, which is that they have to stick to the rule book and they have to stick to the mandate to the, to the 27, which means, I think, ultimately that they won't move. If they ever were going to move and give some sort of um, guarantee on treating the Irish border as an unusual situation and coming up with some sort of compact that could get around it, that was going to happen months ago and the Prime Minister never really even asked for it. So I don't think there is any prospect of it. Personally, my view is that it points towards no deal 
see that there isn't a majority for that in the House of Commons. There isn't a majority for a referendum yet either, we think. Um, there doesn't seem to be a majority for Norway. It seems unclear how it would get there. You'd need something like a national government. There is support for Norway, but it is spread around the House. Well, all of these alternatives to leaving in March 29th, including a simple attempt to revoke Article 50, all requires, because the way our parliamentary system works, requires a prime minister, requires a front, front bench behind that prime minister who's relatively united, a majority in, in the House of Commons to control business and an ability to pass legislation. Now, that being the case, I don't rule out the possibility that you could end up with, with a second referendum. It's plausible, but clock is ticking every single day of drama like this and every day that it put off properly actually preparing to get ready, I think is really irresponsible because on the balance of probabilities, the most likely outcome at the moment seems to be that the law takes effect and that we leave in some uh, form. So shouldn't we get ready, would be my view. And actually her, her decision to delay the vote as Henry was saying, if it pushes it back to January, by the time the House of Commons is due back, that's a month, that's a whole month which is lost. It is deeply, deeply irresponsible. In the run-up, the space, even the space between the deal being signed or the, the deal being shaken on and the vote, remember, there were two and a half weeks lost in that. There's, is it now seriously proposed that there's to be a whole month that people are just going to disappear? Personally, I don't think that Parliament and um, the Cabinet and the Tory party will really stand for just taking the next month off and then seeing what happens when they come back in January. I don't think that that is the mood, but we'll see. Plenty of political journalists are quite looking forward to having a month uh, not talking about Brexit. Uh, Katie, how do you, you've been to, you've been in those rooms, you've been to these EU summits and all that. Did you detect a mood of, of willingness to help? Um, no, uh, because uh, it's not in their interest to do so, because if they start to, to kind of show willingness, then everybody else who's kind of thinking about the same kind of thing down the line will think it's quite a good idea. The thing is for Macron that I've, I feel that people have kind of missed a bit is that he believes he's fighting the same kind of populism. This is his belief, I, I feel, uh, in France with these protests and, and other kind of uh, pushing back against his leadership that we were fighting here and we rolled over and the country voted leave. That's how he, he sees it. So why on earth would he go out on a limb to help us <laughs> when he's fighting it in his very own country? Yeah, he needs to show and he's the saviour. He's the saviour of you know keeping that at the, the wolf at the door type thing that's how, that's how I, I, I see it so you know I think he's going to be quite firm uh, that you know Theresa May could end up being quite embarrassed over the next couple of days humiliated because everything all of these meetings leak they hit Twitter before they're even on the plane so you know she's going to come back and then what and she's no further on other than what you guys are saying in terms of uh, wasting time so it's going to come to a head and uh, whilst the opportunity of a second referendum is growing all the time it is split across the commons but I also wouldn't rule out the fact that it's, it's, we're at election stage at some point soon. Great. So we've decided it's definitely going to be a no deal or a second referendum or another election. And Theresa May may or may not go. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I've stopped a long time worried about, <laughs> worried about that sort of thing. All options are pants. <laughs> yeah. And I suspect the one thing I do know is that before the year is out, Henry Zephyr is going to have to do another... Yippee! <laughs> 
what Christmas are we calling it? A wall chart? Float, well, well float I, I, I envisaged it as a flow oh chart, but, but more than one sado has let me know that they do have it on their wall. In fact, the former pensions minister, Steve Webb, has it in his downstairs loo. Well, there we are. <laughs> what a notes to end on. If you haven't already got one of Henry Zeffman's wall charts on your wall in your downstairs loo, do you there's still... Them? Sorry, on request. It's, on the, but it's, been, it's been carefully studied in number 10 and in the Jeremy Corbyn's office. It is on the walls of uh, leader of the opposition's office. Uh, it is, I was told today, plastered over the walls of Lib Dem HQ. Uh, which is, by the way, really not very reassuring. No, they've done all this themselves <laughs> some time ago, and I, I would have hoped that they did. I think that's because the Lib Dems can't afford wallpaper. <laughs> they're, they're enjoying some sort of financial crisis. They've got it up in the inside of their tent, uh, which they've got pitched. Uh, anyway, um, that's all we've got time for this week. I'm glad that we've sorted all of that out. We know exactly what's uh, going on. The exciting news is that next week we definitely won't be talking about Brexit. We might make some jokes about it because it is the hugely popular, if not award-winning, Red Box Quiz of the Year, where journalists, columnists and politicians go, head to head on the events of the last 12 months make sure you subscribe to the podcast on itunes acast spotify or wherever you get them from so you don't miss the two episodes of that or the specials over christmas but for now thank you for listening throughout 2018 and thank you for listening to this episode my thanks to henry zeffman katie perrier ian martin and for me matt jolly it's goodbye This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.